0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is uh, Marian Tupi. I'm a Senior Policy Analyst uh, here at Cato's uh, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and I'm also uh, the editor of humanprogress.org. My first trip to Zimbabwe took uh, place in 1993, and uh, I was immediately struck by the extraordinary beauty of uh, Zimbabwe and its uh, immense and untapped potential. I might go as far as to say that I fell in love with the country and have been back many times since. But since 1999, since the turn of the new millennium really, uh, I've been watching along with many other people in dismay uh, the country's descent into violence, poverty, legalized theft, and uh, large outflow of its best and brightest At Cato, we have tried to be involved with the Zimbabwean uh, struggle for independence uh, for some uh, 10 years. Uh, One of our scholars, Steve Hanke, uh, did a uh, groundbreaking study on uh, Zimbabwean uh, hyperinflation, uh, trying to estimate um, exactly how large uh, the hyperinflation was circa 2008, according to his estimate. Uh, It amounted to 89.7 sextillion percent per annum. We've also hosted uh, Morgan Changarai uh, back in uh, 2008-2009 after he became uh, Prime Minister of Zimbabwe at a time when optimism seemed warranted, unfortunately. Zimbabwe continues uh, to suffer under th- under a rule of under a 36-year rule of a 92-year-old uh, dictator, Robert Mugabe. On the upside, uh, over the years I have made uh, many Zimbabwean friends, uh, including David Coulthard, who is a senator uh, for the Movement for Democratic Change, the main opposition party in the country. He's been a human rights lawyer in Zimbabwe since returning to that country in 1983 from South Africa. He was first elected to represent Bulawayo South in the House of Assembly constituency in June 2000 and was re-elected in March 2005. In March 2008, um, he was elected as senator to represent the Kumalo senatorial constituency in Bulawayo. And in February of 2009, he was sworn as a Minister of Education, Sports, Arts and Culture. Um, he has uh, seen a lot of good and a lot of bad over the last three decades and put many of his observations in his book, <laughs> The Struggle Continues 50 Years of Tyranny in Zimbabwe, uh, a book which is available for sale outside. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to his comments, which will be followed by um, comments by Ambassador Mark Bellamy. But with that, and before I introduce uh, Mark, uh, let me ask uh, David Coulthard to uh, give us his comments uh, on his book and on what is happening in Zimbabwe. Welcome, David. Thank you, uh, Marion,
1: and thank you, Ambassador Bellamy, for uh, agreeing to be with us this afternoon. Uh, this is the second time I've spoken at Cato. The last time was quite a few years ago, certainly before I went into government, but uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity provided to me by Cato to uh, to hold this event this afternoon. Uh, looking out, I see quite a few friends. Uh, can you hear me? I... A bit closer? Just tell me, is, is that any better? Good, okay. Um, this book has been a long time in coming. Uh, its title, The Struggle Continues, uh, reflects both the, 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 the national struggles within Zimbabwe, but also Uh, the personal struggles, my own uh, lifetime struggles, which we we all face. I describe it as an autobiographical political history of Zimbabwe. And although the subtitle 50 Years of Tyranny would appear to suggest that it only deals with the last 50 years, it it does in fact go back some 60 years uh, to the 1950s, to the times of the uh, federation of the then Rhodesias and Nyasaland. Uh, I go back 60 years, mainly of course, because that was when I was born in, in the 1950s, but also because my own belief is that the federation, certainly under the rule of then Prime Minister Garfield Todd, offered the country a way forward Uh, The country at that time was charting a very different path uh, to that being charted by the apartheid nationalist government in South Africa. Uh, But sadly, soon after I was born, in February 1958, Garfield Todd um, was dismissed by his own cabinet, and although he was replaced by a relatively moderate man, uh, the country started its uh, track downwards. And the 50 years of tyranny relates to the unilateral declaration of independence on the 11th of November 1965 uh, by Ian Smith and the Rhodesian Front Party. And the, the 50th anniversary of that unilateral declaration was, of course, celebrated last November at the time when the book uh, was taken to the publishers, and that's why we put in 50 years of tyranny. I've been challenged, and I've been delighted to have been challenged, by by, both ends of the political spectrum uh, regarding that subtitle. Uh, ZANU-PF uh, have objected to, to me describing the last 36 years of their rule as a tyranny, and... Uh, Former members of the Rhodesian front and supporters of Ian Smith's government objected to me calling his period of rule between 1965 and 1980 as a tyranny. But my intent in the book is is to show that, in fact, both uh, governments are characterized by tyranny. Both governments have employed arbitrary oppressive rule Uh, to secure power and and to maintain power. One of the dominant themes in the book uh, is to demonstrate how the forces of extremism have subverted the potential of of Zimbabwe. Uh, My belief is that although, of course, in the 1950s, uh, under federation and even under a relatively... A moderate ruler like Garfield Todd, the black uh, majority of Zimbabwe, suffered great indignities under racial discrimination. At least under his regime, a new path was being charted, uh, which ultimately, had he been allowed to pursue that path, I believe would have ushered in far more democratic and moderate order. But that was subverted. Uh, Unfortunately, there were, of course, Major other political events at play, in particular the collapse of Belgian rule in the Congo, uh, which frightened a lot of of white Rhodesians and pushed them to to the right. And, of course, the rhetoric of nationalist movements contributed to that as well. Tragically, uh, that polarization of our society, which took place in the 1960s, resulted in a war, a dreadful war, Zimbabwe's own Vietnam, uh, fought with all the tenacity uh, that Vietnam was uh, fought on. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I, I um, paid my respects at the Vietnam uh, Memorial here. And it, it is always, I, I make a point of going to it just as I went to uh, the 9-11 Memorial to see the the names. I think it's the most poignant your two most poignant uh, memorials because they, they are a stark reminder of the cost of um, certainly the Vietnam War and the, the act of terrorism on, at 9-11. So often war is projected in the minds of, of people as something glorious, uh, but certainly my own experience of war is something far different. And unfortunately, Zimbabwe has been affected by the war which was waged in our country as a result of this polarization, as a result of this extremism, as a result of people who were not prepared to negotiate and moderate a political solution. Both sides, nationalist forces and the Rhodesian front front forces, felt that uh, it was only through a demonstration of physical raw military power that this political uh, dilemma could be resolved with deleterious consequences for the country. Uh, it poisoned our nation. And that poison still subsists to this day. And any analysis of Zimbabwe uh, is, um, will, will uh, any analysis of, of Zimbabwe without taking into account the effects of, of that war will not be complete. Uh, if one seeks to understand why it is that Robert Mugabe and ZANU-PF have gone to such lengths and have enjoyed the enthusiastic support of so many war veterans in, for example, uh, pursuing the land reform program that they've embarked on in the last 15 years, one can see its roots in that war. Uh, Paul Hardcastle. Uh, an English songwriter a few years ago had a single called "19," a hit single, which referred to the average age of war veterans in Vietnam. And one of the the lines in that song is that 800,000 Americans are still to this day fighting the Vietnam War. Well, that applies to Zimbabwe as well. The difference between Zimbabwe and America and Vietnam, of course is that all the protagonists in our war are still in the country. And we have never resolved uh, that conflict which ended 36 years ago. And so when Robert Mugabe in 2000 made a call to arms and uh, said that uh, whites were seeking to to regain power and that uh, there needed to be this determined thrust to take over farmland, he found very willing and ready Uh, operatives in the form of war veterans who didn't need much reminding about what they had been through. And, of course, when they came onto farms, they met the very people, many of them the, the same people who fought against them in the war then 20 years previously. And, tragically, this dreadful legacy affects Zimbabwe to this day, Uh, Let me stress that uh, one cannot excuse uh, Robert Mugabe based on that war for all that he has done. Much of it is inexcusable. But it does help us to understand some of the motivations behind him and how he has managed to bring much of a nation along with him in the pursuit of policies that have almost utterly destroyed Zimbabwe's economy. Uh, and certainly gravely undermined its potential. Um, The conclusion of my book is not, funnily enough, pessimistic. I'm not a a pessimist by nature. I'm an Afro-optimist, not just uh, optimistic about Zimbabwe, but about Africa in general, in particular southern, southern Africa. And I don't believe that it's naive optimism, Certainly if one looks at Southern Africa and analyzes where it is today and if one compares that situation to where Southern Africa was 20, 30 years ago, one can see that there has been progress. Most Southern African countries are changing their leaders peacefully and democratically. Most Southern African nations have embraced democracy. In fact, Zimbabwe remains an exception. And that exception doesn't apply to its people. Uh, The Zimbabwean electorate, Zimbabwe people, have consistently, over the last certainly uh, 16 years, sought to change their leadership peacefully through the ballot. That has been denied them. Does that mean that Zimbabwe is a write off, that it will become a failed state? I don't believe it's so. I think we were very close to becoming. A failed state in 2008, and Marion spoke about that, that report that Cato did about uh, the collapse of the Zimbabwe the collapse of the Zimbabwean economy then. But we're not in that position any longer, although the economy is now in decline again. Zimbabwe is not a Liberia or a Somalia. It is a country with <coughs> enormous potential. In fact, it's got virtually every ingredient necessary to become a successful modern nation state, save for one critical ingredient, and that is democracy. Uh, The struggle uh, for democracy continues, uh, and I believe that through the perseverance of very brave colleagues of mine who are documented in this book, ultimately we will achieve that goal. But we cannot do it Alone, we need the support of the international community to encourage Mugabe and ZANU-PF to allow these democratic processes to take place. And we need the international community as well to be focused on our neighbours, to encourage them to do the right thing. My hope for this book, in, in conclusion, is that it will provoke debate about the history so that we have a better understanding of our past, to understand that this single-dimensional view of Mugabe and EPF uh, does not do our, our history justice. And I hope that um, its very strong message, the need for us to resolve our problems using nonviolent democratic means, uh, will uh, be carried through and respected. Um, I'm going to stop on that note. I think that Ambassador Bellamy is is going to speak, and then I I hope that through a process of question and answer, um, we can take this further. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Mark Bellamy is a a former career foreign service officer and ambassador with extensive experience in uh, African affairs. His first African posting was in Harare in 1985. Uh, There, he met uh, a young human rights lawyer, David Coulthard, who informed him that despite uh, official optimism in Washington, um, all was not well in Matabele land. And of course, that uh, interaction uh, between the two gentlemen has led to the first official report on the massacres of the Matabele by the 5th Brigade uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, Later, Mark served as political counselor in South Africa during the transition from apartheid to majority rule and as a U.S. ambassador to Kenya from 2003 to 2006. Uh, Mark is a former director of the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at National Defense University. He's currently Warburg Professor of International Relations at uh, Simmons College in Boston and a senior advisor for Africa at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Please help me welcome Mark Bellamy.
2: Uh, Thank you, thank you very much, Marian, and thanks very much also to the Cato Institute for organizing this book forum uh, this afternoon. Uh, I'm very honored to be here today uh, alongside uh, David Coulthard. As Marian said, I I first met David some 31 years ago uh, in Bulawayo. Uh, I was uh, just off the plane, Uh, had just arrived in Harare as a junior political officer in the American Embassy, and I think our first encounter was at a joint called the New Orleans House. It was a, a restaurant in Bulawayo, and I, I still remember that meal because it was the first time I'd ever eaten a meal of crocodile. And and David uh, said the usual thing, go ahead, it tastes like chicken, uh, and it did, and that was the first bit of good advice I think I got from David, the first bit of, of, of good advice, and, and there were many others to follow after that. Um, I think that time frame was in about page 160 or 170 of your, of your book, and uh, it was indeed a dark time in Zimbabwe, uh, as David so vividly describes. But I did not fully appreciate that darkness, nor did the U.S. Embassy, nor did the U.S. government at the time. And I will return to talk a little bit about that blindness later in my remarks. Uh, David's book is, is many things. Uh, it's, it's a big book. First of all, it's a heavy book. Uh, I dove into this and found myself engrossed for uh, long periods of time uh, in the narrative uh, that unfolds. And I think that anybody here who has spent time in Zimbabwe, followed Zimbabwe, studied Zimbabwe's trajectory over the past several decades would have the same reaction to it. Uh, but this is also a book that's rich in insights and rich in historical lessons that help us understand contemporary Zimbabwe Uh, and it is also a cautionary tale it's a cautionary tale with relevance beyond Zimbabwe anyone who is concerned about the authoritarian drift of um, politics around the world today or is concerned about the rollback of democratic values in places like Africa would would do well to study the study Robert Mugabe's practice of this dark art. Uh, And David's book provides a very, very interesting illustration of the master tyrant uh, at work, Uh, still at work, I should say, at age 91. David's book is an exercise in truth-telling. It's about bearing witness, establishing an historical record, um, and claiming facts and putting them into context. It's not about assigning blame. Although it's pretty clear over and over again who the culpable parties are, uh, David also makes the very good point that it is often very difficult to precisely fix responsibility for murders and disappearances and massacres and mass atrocities, of which there have been far too many in Zimbabwe over the past 50 years. When justice is not available, we realize in reading David's book, it becomes critical for us to at least fix terrible events in our collective memory as real, as undeniable, and as something that we have to continue to reckon with. This is also a deeply personal book. Uh, It's written with modesty and... And a great deal of humility. David has lived an extraordinary life in extraordinary times. It's easy to describe him uh, as a hero. If he did not mention in his opening remarks the five different, four different attempts on his life over the past over the past ten years. Um, but that's not the book that he writes. Uh, he writes about his doubts, about misgivings, about uncertainties, about miscalculations, and all of that makes his achievements. Uh, even more remarkable. I frequently found myself asking, what was the motivation that caused him to run so many risks seeking justice in Zimbabwe? It certainly wasn't fame, it wasn't ambition, and it wasn't making money, it wasn't wealth. The most I could decide that it was a moral duty. David may have another word to describe it, another explanation for it. Uh, but it was a calling, I believe, of some kind. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about several themes in David's book that that really stood out for me. The first of these was ZANU-PF's use of terror as an instrument of power. Terror was central to ZANU-PF's strategy as an insurgent organization, as a liberation movement, but it was also critical to its later consolidation of power as the ruling party, its crushing of domestic political opponents and its creation of a de facto one-party state. Much can be said about Zanu's use of terror, that it was decisive in keeping an increasingly discredited ruling party in power for more than 30 years is undeniable. The rule of law was one of the few defenses Zimbabweans had against this terror, and it was a shaky defense at best. David and his colleagues used every legal avenue available to blunt PF onslaughts. And in a legal system that had not yet been completely corrupted by PF, they won victories. They won a number of important victories. But the erosion of the rule of law was unstoppable, I would say, after 2000. David may have a different date. But it was interesting that there are a number of points in the book where David worries that the rule of law has in fact disappeared altogether in Zimbabwe. Interestingly, David notes that this erosion began much earlier uh, when white governments actually curtailed civil liberties through a series of emergency laws passed prior to independence. Those same restrictive laws were enthusiastically then embraced and applied by PF when it came to power. David notes the historic blunder of Ian Smith and his supporters at Lancaster House in 1980 uh, when they insisted that certain white privileges be inserted into the new constitution, but did little to ensure that the new constitution contained basic safeguards of the rights of all Zimbabweans. Another important theme in David's book is the reminder that disregard for human rights is really the canary in the coal mine when it comes to detecting threats to democracy. White Zimbabweans surrendered their civil liberties to the Smith regime in the 1960s and 70s, and they never got them back. The international community largely overlooked mass atrocities in Zimbabwe in the 1980s. That sent a message of indifference to ZANU-PF. David warned in the 1990s that the continuing rollback of the rule of law threatens Zimbabwe's economy and future democratic prospects. He was proved right a few years later when Mugabe unleashed the full force of the ruling party in the state on the movement for democratic change. Finally, and this is sort of my closing point here, David's book reminded me of the role international actors have played in Zimbabwe's modern history. The idea that somehow there was nothing the international community could do to end or at least moderate Mugabe's violent and corrupt rule just doesn't stand up when looked at historically. Ian Smith was as stubborn a leader as Robert Mugabe ever was. Yet when South African Prime Minister John Forster pulled the plug on Rhodesia, Smith knew it was game over. He knew then that he couldn't hold out for very long, much less the thousand years he'd promised his white supporters. Robert Mugabe had never seen a compromise he couldn't say no to until he got to the Lancaster House talks in 1980 and was finally told by then Zambian President Kenneth Kaunda and Mozambican leader Samora Michelle Comrade, here's the deal. You will sign it. And he did. That kind of international pressure profoundly shaped Zimbabwe's future and for the the better. Since then, unfortunately, the international community has mostly failed Zimbabwe. I was a small part of that failure in the mid-1980s when the US government did not fully appreciate the extent of atrocities that had occurred in Matabililand, in which David and his colleagues Later, so capably, so bravely cataloged. The truth is, we didn't really want to know. We wanted to celebrate Zimbabwe's transition to independence. We wanted to extol its great economic potential. We wanted to hold Zimbabwe up as a counterexample to apartheid South Africa. Looking back, I realize now that we were also happy overall at the state of race relations then in Zimbabwe, at the fact that white Zimbabweans, those that had stayed, were for the most part loyal, were doing well, and were providing the capital and know-how that Zimbabwe needed to develop. And if white farmers were being killed by so-called dissidents in land, dissidents sponsored by the South African Security Services, then. Perhaps harsh actions taken by the Mugabe government had some justification. We were not mindful then of the canary in the coal mine. The real international failure in Zimbabwe is more recent, however. David alludes to it, but I would be even more blunt. By 2002, it was clear that a majority of Zimbabweans wanted change. They had voted for it, and they had risked their lives for it. And the change they called for was, in all respects, congruent with the liberal democratic values that we in the West hold dear. A number of African states, including some of Zimbabwe's neighbors, strongly sympathized with this mass movement. The U.S., the U.K., the E.U., the Commonwealth all called for more pressure on Mugabe to respect the rule of law and to acknowledge the will of the Zimbabwean electorate. I remember this well as I was a senior US official and part of this lobbying effort at the time. South Africa was not prepared to go along. It preferred a tactic of quiet diplomacy. Intentionally or unintentionally this gave Mugabe the protection he needed to continue business as usual. The opportunity to press for peaceful change was missed in 2002 and it was missed repeatedly thereafter as Western powers continued to press for action on Zimbabwe and South Africa resisted. There is no doubt whatsoever that at several junctures after 2002, the right South African moves could have galvanized international support to end the violent stalemate in Zimbabwe. It was never that difficult. A free and fair election under strict international supervision was all that was needed. Zimbabwe's tragedy is that that never happened. I should add that this is my thesis. This is not the argument that David makes in his book. This is a little bit my overlay. I don't know whether David agrees with my my analysis here. If he does, he's probably far too democratic to put it, too di- diplomatic to put it in the same in the same terms. David's book is a tra- is a is a tale of of tragedy and woe, but it also conveys hope. It relates the incredible decency, courage, and perseverance of so many ordinary Zimbabweans. That the nation, that the Zimbabwean nation could have survived the political and economic ordeals it has gone through over these past two or three decades is itself an indicator of hope. It may not be easy to see the way forward in Zimbabwe. Perhaps we'll talk a little bit uh, about that. Uh, But I think David is, is very right to title This book, The Struggle, continues. And for those who perhaps want to imagine a better future for Zimbabwe, maybe the best way to start would be to read David's book. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you you very much. Our speakers um, wanted to make their uh, contributions short uh, so that there is uh, enough uh, time for uh, questions and the interaction with the audience, and uh, we will indeed either run out of time or out of questions, um, but before I turn it over to the audience, uh, I have a quick question for you, David, first, um, and that has to do with the rule of law. You are mm-hmm. a lawyer. Uh, you have been observing the situation in Zimbabwe, in, in in particular in Africa in general, for a very long time. You understand the crucial importance of the rule of law, and I agree that that is absolutely vital, especially in the time of uh, globalization when uh, global capital, um, foreign investment needs legal certainties. So question about rule of law. Um, A federal judge whom you probably met, Judge Ginsburg, um, once told me there is a difference between corrupt judges and judges implementing bad laws. Judges in Nazi Germany, which was the subject of his conversation, were judges who were personally not corrupt, but imposing inhumane legislation. But once that legislation was repealed, those judges could return to applying, adjudicating, humane laws. And the judiciary survived, with few exceptions that were resolved during the Nuremberg trials. Many of the judges in Zimbabwe have now, been, have now become a part of the problem. They were personally corrupted through land grants, um, bribery, grants of cars, and so on and so forth. How do you envisage the rule of law to be reconstituted? Um, where will these angels who will apply um, just laws come from.
1: There's no doubt that um, it's not just the physical infrastructure of Zimbabwe which has been damaged. The social fabric, the moral fabric of the country has been severely undermined. And Zimbabwe, I I read a a World Economic Forum uh, tweet just this this morning that, that indicated that Zimbabwe is now one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And unfortunately, Uh, The judiciary has become part and parcel of that. Uh, One of my great concerns in writing the book was um, uh, about me being held in contempt of the judiciary because I am very critical of it. Uh, I I have spelt out in the book how the judiciary, certainly since the, um, the former Chief Justice Anthony Gubbe was deposed in 2001, has become... Almost an arm of of ZANU PF, and has implemented uh, it, its policy without without question. So, one of the the major problems that any new administration faces is how does one reform the judiciary? Uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind that that some of the existing judges um, are so uh, steeped in ZANU PF practices that it will be very difficult for for them. Uh, to continue and still receive the, the respect of, of the people of, of Zimbabwe. But having said that, uh, I would mention two things. I mean, the, the first is that one of the, um, one of the most positive uh, things to come out of the last 16 years has been the role of the legal profession in Zimbabwe. Uh, The Law Society of Zimbabwe which governs the legal profession in Zimbabwe has steadfastly stood against the government and has not become partisan in any way. And uh, through upholding such high principles we have seen the emergence of many highly competent, highly principled Zimbabwean lawyers. And I, I stress because of the racial nature, black Zimbabwean lawyers. There are people like Beatrice Mtetwa who's been lauded throughout the world just recently given an honorary doctorate who's in private uh, practice at present. But all of these lawyers are in the wings and would become outstanding uh, judges in, in future. We also have a lot of Zimbabwean lawyers in the diaspora. I'm sure there are Zimbabwean lawyers even, perhaps, perhaps even in this audience. But certainly, for example, on, at, at my New York launch this week, Luke Malaba, who works for the United Nations, a highly competent lawyer, was was present. There are people like that in the diaspora. So that's the one positive uh, point. The other is that a very interesting thing is taking place within the judiciary even now, even before the political transition takes place. As many of you will know, in 2013, and perhaps the most important success of the inclusive government, was to uh, agree on a new constitution. A new constitution, which, although seriously flawed in some respects, is basically a, a vast improvement on the old law, uh, with very important rights contained in its Bill of Rights. And in the, uh, perhaps because of political jitters brought about by the upheaval within the country and the divisions within ZANU-PF, we've started to see some judges... Who formerly towed the ZANU-PF P- line uh, 100%, uh, th- some of these judges ha- have now started implementing uh, certain progressive features of this new constitution. Uh, and so even within the existing judiciary, uh, I-, I see a growing number of judges who have decided, they can see the writing is on the wall, and they, they would like to do the, the right thing. So in conclusion, it's a it's a huge problem, but it's not insurmountable.
0: All right, glad to hear that. All right, we'll open it to Q&A. Uh, please wait until the mic gets to you. If you would please tell us who you are uh, and who your paymaster is, and uh, kindly form your question as a question, which is to say, please try to stay away from statements and just ask a question. That way we get through many more of them. Um, and uh, also address the question to a specific person. Yes, sir. Uh,
1: yes, uh, Pat Spann, just myself. I was in Harare in the spring of 81 looking at the um, new future embassy, American embassy. And I, I just want to say real quick, the, uh, I went to a steakhouse up on the hilltops over there and I still remember it being the best filmignan I've ever had in my life. Of course, that was in 1981. It's probably is long gone by now. But anyway, I guess my question, I also was in um, Zambia in 03 and and the uh, Zambian government was hiring white uh, Rhodesian um, farmers to run farms because they decided that was uh, good economic, made economic sense. And I guess my my question basically is, are there any white farmers left in Zimbabwe? Um, well, let me say that the, the, the fillet steaks are, are just as good as ever. There, there's some things that uh, not even Robert Mugabe can damage. And, um, uh, especially from the part of the country that I come from in the southwest, we pride ourselves on our steaks, so you better come and visit us again. But uh, turning to the more serious um, aspect, yes, there are um, some Left, they're probably 10% of the original number, uh, and the commercial farming sector has has been devastated. Um, in virtually every sector of agriculture, uh, crop production yields have gone down. Uh, some have have um, been maintained. For example, tobacco uh, has changed. It, it's changed from being a crop grown by large scale commercial farmers to a crop grown by small-scale commercial farmers, and the tonnage is, and the quality, is, is uh, comparable. Um, that, however, has been done at a huge environmental cost, whereas commercial farmers used to uh, import large quantities of coal and, and had fairly sophisticated curing bonds, uh, Many of these small-scale farmers are now cutting down indigenous trees to cure their tobacco. So one doesn't know how uh, sustainable that is in in the long term. But virtually every other sector in agriculture is marked by massive declines in, in production. Let me just make one point. that No rational person would argue, in Zimbabwe that is, that land holdings as they were in 2000 were sustainable. There was a tiny minority of white farmers who had a disproportionate control over over land. And even uh, uh, white commercial farming organizations appreciated the need for major land reform. Our quarrel with Robert Mugabe has never been about land reform per se. Our quarrel has been regarding the method employed to achieve that. Uh, many of us argue that uh, young black commercial farmers should be identified and trained and financial provisions be placed, put in place and a gradual system be employed to ensure that the uh, racial composition of landholding change in, in a sustained but systematic uh, basis. But, of course, that wasn't politically expedient uh, and it wasn't done with... Once again, I'll use the word, deleterious consequences for the nation.
2: Yes, sir. Of course. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say that, that that delicious filet mignon was served at almost every official embassy dinner. And it was delicious. It was a little monotonous after a while, but it was delicious. Um, but to David's point, I, went, I, I recall, and I think it was in 1985, when Zimbabwe first got permission from the EU to start exporting frozen Beef to uh, to Europe, uh, to EU markets, and I thought that was a that was a big deal for some, the Zimbabwe agricultural community, and it was a, it was an example of the sophistication with which the Zimbabwean agricultural sector was able to engage in global markets. Um, on the land reform, uh, you know, I think David is absolutely right, and you know it took me a while to realize that I think for Robert Mugabe it was not about land reform. It was about the use of land for political patronage purposes, and so many opportunities were missed for twenty years up before two thousand to engage in some sort of a rational and gradual. That um, it, it became evident that uh, that in fact it was ultimately about political patronage.
0: Let's start with uh, the lady, and we'll make our way there. So.
1: Uh, My name is Wendy. I'm representing myself. My question is both to David Coulter and Ambassador Bellamy. Uh, You both talked about the atrocities in the 1980s, and I do understand as you say that it might be too late to sort of assign blame, but how do you think that will be best resolved on a social or national basis? Do you think something similar to the truth and reconciliation um, process in South Africa or Rwanda, would that be useful, and how do you think will be the best way to do it? And Is there a need for a political transition before that happens, for it to happen effectively? Thank you. Thank you. That's a a very important question for the country going forward. Um, One of the things, if you read the book, you'll see is that I was heavily involved in the initiation and production of the report which was published in 1997 called Breaking the Silence. Uh, It was released by the Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace and the Legal Resources Foundation. And one of the things that surprised me when we spoke to victims in the preparation of that report was that what they desired uh, didn't match what I expected them to say. I expected many victims at the time to say that they wanted uh, justice to be the focus, that they wanted people tried for war crimes and the like. On the contrary, they came up in, the vast majority of them said that they wanted an apology, they wanted an acknowledgement that what had happened, had happened. And thirdly, they wanted communal reparations. And I think that um, what that taught me is that it is wrong for any lawyer or any politician to suppose, to assume, what victims might want. And I I still hold that that position now. I, I think that what we need in Zimbabwe at first is an opportunity for truth-telling, which must be victim-orientated. And once that truth-telling has taken place, we need the victims themselves to tell us, the politicians and the lawyers, what they want regarding justice and reconciliation. As good as uh, Archbishop Tutu's process was, as groundbreaking as it was, we know that it didn't achieve justice and reconciliation in South Africa. It it made a significant step towards that, but as we can still see in South Africa through the the eruptions taking place there, South Africa has got a long way to go before the vast majority of black South Africans feel that there's justice and before there is genuine reconciliation that's taking place. And I think that the the expectations of the South African uh, process were too high. Um, And and so I hope that in Zimbabwe we we will learn from that. One final point is that we know from, you just have to look at the Holocaust, um, that justice and reconciliation isn't something that happens overnight. It takes decades, it takes generations to to achieve. But the first step in that is truth-telling. Yes, sir. Sorry, just one other point. And it mustn't start in 1980. It must go back to the 1960s. It's absolutely one cannot understand the Gukuruhundi Hundi unless you understand the violence uh, which was brought about by the war in the 1960s and 70s.
2: Yes, I'm uh, Ronald Wilson with the United States government. My, my question uh, pertains uh, what happens uh, once Mugabe
1: is gone. Do you believe that uh, there's going to be a possibility for? Uh, Zimbabwe uh, becoming a, a haven for terrorists or a civil war, or do you think there will be more progressive programs that will make it a stable country? I, uh, my, my friends call me a pathological optimist, so you're going to have to take what I say with a, a pinch of salt, sir. Um, in the medium to long term, I, I remain very optimistic and positive about Zimbabwe. Um, because of its inherent strengths, but also primarily because of its people and and their commitment to to nonviolence. But in the short term, I'm very worried. In fact, I haven't been as worried as this um, for a long, long time. And, And the reason is because whereas up until a few years ago, had there been any civil war, it would have been a very short one because all the arms were controlled by one body of people which, with allegiances to one political party against civic society who had by and large embraced nonviolence and who had no access to arms of war. And so, as I say, had there been a civil war, it would have been a very short one. However, um, since 2014... Robert Mugabe's party, ZANU-PF, has started to fracture. And uh, in the last three years, we've seen the emergence of three very clear factions within ZANU-PF, or at the very least, amongst people who formerly owed their allegiance to to ZANU-PF, namely the uh, Joyce Mujuru faction, secondly, the faction which owes its allegiance to um, Emerson Manangagwa, the current vice president, And a third faction, which is uh, commonly known as the G40 or Generation 40 faction, which appears to owe its allegiance to uh, Robert Mugabe's wife. Now, those factions aren't just comprised of politicians. Um, the, The fractures go right the way through the military, through the intelligence services, through the police. And we're in a very dangerous situation now. It's unprecedented, certainly, since the the, the 1980s, where you have people in control of arms of of war who are now in a political dogfight. And we know PF's history. Uh, We we know their bias towards the use of of violence. And I fear that uh, these factions could um, uh, start using violence to, to resolve their political uh, battle. Um, I don't think that that would spread to the rest of the country. Um, but, of course, people get killed in, in crossfire. As regards your question regarding terrorism, one of the anomalies of Zimbabwe uh, it is, is that for all its bad press in the international community, it is, in fact, one of the safest places in the world. It's a great irony, um, possibly because our economy has collapsed. All the criminals have gone to South Africa because they're <laughs> not to steal. Um, But um, possibly because Mugabe is viewed as a tyrant, uh, ISIS and other terrorist organizations have not uh, seen, seen it as a place that they can operate from. But the fact is that unlike a country like Kenya, there's a minimal terrorist threat within the country, and I, I think certainly in the short to medium term, that will continue. And, and for all my criticisms of Robert Mugabe and ZANU-PF, um, he, he hasn't ever flirted with extremist terrorist organizations in the last 20 years. There's no inclination amongst ZANU-PF to do so. I'm sure your intelligence services can confirm that, but that—that that is certainly my impression. Uh,
2: no, I, I completely agree with David's analysis. I think that Zimbabwe is in a very, um, at sort of a precarious juncture now. Uh, Robert Mugabe has not arranged for any clear uh, succession. Uh, you know, we've been asking for 20 years, when is he going to leave, when is he going to leave? And, you know, we've heard many, many reports of his ill health and so forth. He's 91, I mean, he is, he is gonna be leaving at some point. Uh, we, we, don't know, we don't know when that will be. But as long as there's no clear route of succession, it will spell danger for Zimbabwe. And as David said, now there are rival groups that are armed, and that wasn't the case. It was never the case before um
0: let's get that gentleman there and we'll hi doug brooks uh, i was a teacher in uh, kamzuma township in 1984-85 uh, my question is on the uh, future of the uh, diaspora uh, a lot so many of the best and brightest have left zimbabwe and gone to south africa and other countries what can they do uh what they sh- what should they be doing at this point to sort of prepare zimbabwe for the future
1: There's no doubt that one of the the worst blows that Zimbabwe has suffered has been the exodus of many of its brightest people. Um, going to any business in South Africa, you'll see some of our best accountants and economists and bankers and, and the like. And it applies to virtually every single profession, um, with very grave consequences for, for Zimbabwe. Um, we need th- those people back. Sadly, with the length of time the struggle has taken, many people have put down roots elsewhere and, and now are not in a position to come back to the country. Uh, the task of any new government must be to uh, employ policies which attract those people back, back. But to answer your question, what can be done, what can they do? Um, I think the most important thing is for them to keep themselves informed. That might sound self-serving, saying read my book, but um, but but no. Generally, um, I, I think that Zimbabweans need to read as much as they can, keep in contact w- with organisations, and I think there are ways in which they can use their financial uh, clout. And, and also the acumen that they've uh, um, developed, received in countries like America, uh, America to, to help institutions in Zimbabwe. I, for example, let me put my education hat on, for example. It's, it's critically important that we keep certain important cores of Zimbabwean society going. The great tragedy of 2008, for example, is that the education sector almost collapsed. And I think that there are some strategic investments that Zimbabweans can make, particularly in the education sector. If we don't keep the education sector going, it's going to be very difficult to rebuild the economy when political change comes. And that can be done in a very practical way. There are many uh, uh, worthy charities and other organisations that pay for school fees Invest in schools. And I I would encourage Zimbabweans in the diaspora, if they do nothing else, think about where they went to school and they should be encouraged to try and channel money and other resources in, into those schools to keep them going.
0: Right. Um gentleman over there, we'll then get back to you.
1: Hello, um, David Smith of the Guardian uh, newspaper in the UK. Um, just on Zimbabwe's relations with the US, um, do you think there has always been a potential danger that the more the US uh, tries to influence change or is seen as interfering, that the more that gives ammunition to ZANU PF to say this is uh, Western meddling, Western imperialism. Um, Ambassador Bellamy, was that a, a difficult tightrope to walk? And 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 Mr. Coulthard, I mean, how how does one square that circle um, going forward? Is there a danger that the more the West tries to help, actually, the more counterproductive it will be? Uh, I'm often described by Zani Pief as um, uh, well. Let, let me move away from myself. Morgan Sangurai is often described as a puppet of of the West in particular of Britain. I'm not sure that I've been described as a puppet, but um, certainly I've been described as an agent. Um, I've enjoyed very good relations with both the the British government and people like Ambassador Bellamy for for many, many years. But the irony, to use that word again, is that I've often been deeply frustrated by uh, Western governments uh, who generally haven't listened to us In my book, I describe um, uh, meetings I had in the State Department here in in Washington in in 1992, when the World Bank was first starting to pour money into Zimbabwe, and it was deeply frustrating for me at, at that time that there was there were very few conditions attached to to that aid. At the time, I argued that a condition of the aid should be the opening up of our media of of newspapers and, and television statements and we were just disregarded then. Uh, in the 2000s, although I'm described as the architect, which is nonsense, um, of the, the uh, so-called sanctions law, um, at the time it was it was deeply frustrating. I, I describe um, Western foreign policy, in particular American foreign foreign policy, often is trying to divert an oil tanker. Uh, it, it takes a long, long time to get the policy changed, and one of the great frustrations recently is that when we eventually managed to get American foreign policy changed and diverted uh, as an oil tanker on, on Zimbabwe, it's been very difficult to change direction. Um, since 2010, I've believed that sanctions, for example, were beyond this, their sell by date uh, and actually were damaging the, the, the process of, of reform. And I've spoken uh, vehemently in the State Department on uh, hard talk in the BBC that they, they should be ended. Uh, not because I believe that uh, things have changed greatly within the country, but I've argued that. Ironically, they are used to great effect by ZANU-PF. Everything from potholes to poor health delivery now is is blamed on targeted sanctions. And that excuse should be removed from ZANU-PF, but we have not uh, been listened to. As Ambassador Bellamy spoke as well, um, I, I feel that at the critical period in the early 2000s, far more pressure should have been brought to bear on the region to do the right thing. Uh, and unfortunately, that that wasn't done with as much vigor. Turning to the present time, I think that the great danger about Zimbabwe is that because there's no blood running in the, in the streets, that attention has been taken off. I am sympathetic. I, I do understand that Zimbabwe does not constitute a threat like ISIS constitutes. And and to that extent, uh, uh, the dropping in the order of priority is understandable and and won't change. But I do think that if uh, America is interested in Africa, that the argument remains that the key to the long-term development of Africa is actually southern Africa, because southern Africa has shown the greatest inclination towards embracing democracy than in any other region of, of Africa. And the key to southern Africa is, in fact, Zimbabwe. Because of its geographical position, if Zimbabwe explodes, it has very severe consequences on South Africa and, and the rest of the, of the region. And the converse is that if Zimbabwe uh, grows and and embraces democracy, it's going to have a very constructive, positive effect on the whole of Southern Africa. And to that extent, there needs to be more focus on Zimbabwe. And it the, the, the primary means of doing that should be through multilateralism, not so much bilateralism, which doesn't yield much fruit at present.
0: Ambassador, let me ask you... Um, Obviously, one of the great disappointments of the early 2000s was the hands-off attitude that South Africa took with regard to um, Zimbabwe. But actually, I shouldn't say hands-off. Uh, very much uh, um, an attitude of excusing what was happening in Zimbabwe and, uh, and uh, sort of stamping their approval on uh, Zimbabwean elections. So actually giving uh, Robert Mugabe something of a, of a backing Um, Michael Gerson described, of the Washington Post, described South Africa as a rogue democracy. Um, What do Africanists in Washington and in the United States feel about South Africa, the way it's going, its foreign policy, and um, the values which which, which, uh, Nelson Mandela has spoken about in the early
2: 1990s? I think U.S. diplomats are careful not to describe it as a rogue democracy. <laughs> but uh, I certainly understand Michael Gerson's point, and I think they would most diplomats would understand that too. Um, I'd like to talk more, not maybe not so much about where South Africa is going uh, as as a democracy, but maybe pick up on your point a little bit about South Africa's role then vis-a-vis uh, Zimbabwe and uh, another point, um, South Africa will probably have a role to play in any kind of a transition that Zimbabwe makes going forward. South Africa will be called to play, uh, to play a role. Um, what, um, what was disturbing at the time, you mentioned 2000, 2002, uh, was South Africa's insistence, and I heard this very often from South African officials, that they just couldn't move Mugabe. It was too hard, and it was too dangerous. The situation was too was too risky. Zimbabwe might explode. Well, you know, South Africa already had nearly three million Zimbabwean refugees camped alongside roads and in informal settlements inside South Africa. Uh, it was hard at the time to envision how much worse does the situation have to get. Uh, we had many debates within the U.S. government about why South Africa was taking this position. Why was the Tauboambeke government seemingly extending a lifeline to, uh, to Robert Mugabe. And I don't know that we ever came, I mean, I have my own views, but I don't think we ever came to a conclusion as to why that was. What we did know was that as long as South Africa had in effect thrown an arm around Mugabe's shoulder, it became extremely difficult for the US, the UK, and others to work with states in the region SADC, the Botswanas, the Zambias, the Mozambiques, the Malawis, the others who did want to bring more pressure on Mugabe. And when you couldn't get any kind of an Africa quorum together to call for respect for the rule of law and change in Zimbabwe, then it was going to be impossible to move the AU and even harder to move the UN. And what happened in 2002 and 2003 is that Robert Mugabe was very, very capably exploited the pressure he was getting from the U.S. and the U.K. as, you know, the 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 machinations of the neo-imperialists of the ex-colonial powers and of the West, and it was a very effective propaganda, a very effective propaganda line. Can I
1: just chip in sure. on on that? I I would. I, I greatly admire Michael Gerson, let me say that up front, but I, I would disagree with his description of South Africa. I think that uh, President Zuma has badly damaged the South African brand as an individual, but I think that South African democracy is, a, is alive and well. There's no doubt it's a process and it's been undermined by this presidency, But one has to look just recently, just a few weeks ago, um, the South African Constitutional Court delivered this landmark judgment uh, criticizing President uh, Zuma and and the the use of state funds in the construction of of his uh, home. And there there are many other evidences, I think, of South African democracy actually being on track. It's by no means perfect. the challenge for the ANC is going to be to elect a competent president to replace President Zuma and, and get that democracy firmly back on track.
0: Thank you. The lady, and then we'll move on to the right.
3: Uh, my name is Mercedes. And the mic is not on. Can you hear me? My name is Mercedes, and I'm here representing myself. And my question is more about uh, the elections coming up in uh, 2018 and kind of moving forward with uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, You touched on this a little bit, uh, but my question is more uh, with countries uh, less than desirable uh, leaders. uh, Oftentimes, you'll see these countries that take generations to actually achieve a transparent uh, democratic leader. And my question is... um, with Mugabe being 94 near the next election, he may be met by another fate (laughs) before the election comes. And with Morgan uh, Chingarai, do you think Morgan is more of a uh, leader that Zimbabwe needs right now versus an ideal leader? And with that, do you see any emerging leaders uh, that are showing any promise in Zimbabwe in the future? Uh, So kind of just your analysis of what the uh, next election looks like.
1: The... The current political environment is is marked by divisions within ZANU PF, but also very serious divisions within the opposition. And if the Zimbabwean opposition doesn't get its act together, it may well usher in a further period of ZANU PF rule under one of the, the one of their factions. Uh, the. The position of opposition politics has actually deteriorated in the last few, few years. We, we now have seven or eight um, political parties in, in opposition. The MDC itself has split, and virtually every significant leader within the MDC now runs their own party, uh, also called the MDC or something similar. Uh, the fact remains that there can only be one presidential candidate who, who wins. Uh, and so the, the greatest political challenge um, facing Zimbabweans today isn't, in fact, what's happening within ZANU PF, it's what's happening within the opposition. Um, we have this preoccupation with personality. The final chapter of my book deals with this. I, I speak about the culture of personality which is developing in the country. I use the expression that. Cecil John Rhodes begat Ian Smith, and Ian Smith begat Robert Mugabe, and Robert Mugabe almost begat Morgan Sangarai, may still do so. And we have this preoccupation with personality, and I know it's a feature of politics the world over. You just look at um, some of your own candidates in America, you know, aspiring to be elected, um, who don't focus so much on policy but their own personalities. Um, but we do have a terrible preoccupation with personality, and when you look at the opposition, you try to get them to distinguish themselves on policy. They can't, generally. They all believe in democracy and make the same platitudes. Um, So at present, I come back... It's a similar... um, perspective on the gentleman's question there in the short term I'm I'm very pessimistic you've got a divided zone PF, and you've got a divided opposition that there is a political vacuum to To come to the nub of your question regarding Morgan Sangarai I I respect Morgan Sangarai a great deal he, he is an exceptionally courageous person I have no doubt that he is committed to um, to democracy to bringing about democracy in in the country. But unfortunately, under his tenure in the last 16 years, the opposition has not consolidated, it has fragmented. And he does not enjoy the support of very significant players. And so I'm not sure that he is the person who can unite these people. And, And quite frankly, without some form of coalition, we are going to divide the opposition vote and usher this very further period of ZANU-PF rule. So we need uh, leaders who are either going to change their existing attitude to others, and that could be Morgan Sangarai, but he's going to have to change his approach to people like Tendai Biti and Joyce Mujuru and others and bring them into his own tent, or we'll need a, a new political leader, who has the ability to, to unite these disparate forces?
0: Gentlemen over there in the back. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Ellington Cumber. Uh, I'm representing myself. Um, a quick question uh, on the issue of land. Uh, I know it's been protracted for a long time. Uh, we go back to Claire Short back in the um, Blay uh, government. Um, and I'm not going to dwell on the past. I think going forward, uh, what is the question in terms of uh, uh, re-engaging, say, the white farmers that have left the country or are in the country, uh, the people that have actually now settled in the land who may or may not have legal um, paper to actually show that they own the land? Because I think the whole conversation is around, you know, what do we do in terms of uh, legal structures going forward? And that is obviously... The question for the future.
1: It's very appropriate that you've asked that question in the Cato Institute because this is an issue that the Cato Institute uh, holds very dearly. Um, I think going forward the issue should no longer be about race. Um, one of zanf cries has been that the land reform program is irreversible and in, in one sense it is. When Uh, The invasions first took place when the policy was first implemented in 2000. The average age of white commercial farmers was then 55 years old. The vast majority of white commercial farmers can't go back, even if they wanted to, to farm now, even if their farms were handed back to them. They're too old and uh, they do not have the finances required. So to that extent, it is irreversible. Um, and we can, I hope, take race out of it. One of the, the the major problems that I have with the constitution is that it still has race, racially discriminatory clauses in, which are unnecessary. In my view, going forward, the key issue is tenure. That's what we we have to debate as a nation. Uh, Zanu PF is not prepared to to tackle the issue of tenure. And I know this from being in cabinet, and I, I, I write about it in the book. In uh, uh, During the tenure of the, the inclusive government, we said that we needed to develop new policies to, to give title to landholders, irrespective of their, their race, uh, so that they could use their land as collateral with banks. The most that ZANU-PF has been prepared to give our so-called 99-year leases, but which are in reality three-month leases because they can be cancelled at the whim of the minister. That does not constitute adequate tenure, adequate title, in in my view. And the way forward must be fundamentally to give title in land, um, to learn the lessons of Hernando de Soto and the mystery of capital, and to understand that we, 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 we have um, a vast am- amount of dead capital in our country, namely our land, that cannot be uh, levered in, in, in any way to, to create wealth. Of course, we, in doing that, are going to have to address the historical problems. There are many uh, white commercial farmers who had title to land, and if we are going to embrace the international community, th- th- those claims of title have to be addressed in some way, uh, by adequate compensation at, at the very least, and possibly in the very small number of cases uh, that, that would apply to, to putting those farmers back uh, on, on their land. But until we actually grant title, and it, in my view it has to be freehold title to, to farmers, black and white, that land will remain dead capital. The financial sector will not grow in, at the rate it should because of this vast uh, amount of dead capital in, in our country. Um, and, and until we do that, uh, the the country's economy is is going to be stunted. I could go on about this for a long, long time. No,
0: but but the, the essence of it, I think, is absolutely correct. Uh, enforceability and security of, pro, of property rights is absolutely crucial absolutely. for any economic development. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and especially in, in an era where capital can go to 194 other countries yeah, in the world. Yeah.
1: And yeah. just one other point. We can't just look at formal white commercial farmlands. We have to tackle the issue of communal areas. Zono are unwilling to do this because the moment they grant title, both in former commercial farm areas and in communal areas, they they lose political leverage. At at present, through their control of chiefs, they control uh, communal dwellers, and at present, through these so-called 99-year leases, they actually control present occupants of former commercially held land. And that gives them enormous political power. Um, by depriving people of, of their rights to title uh, they, they are, are kept um, you know subservient to to the to the government
0: all right so on uh, uh, the bad news is that uh, we are we are going to uh, uh, we are going to end the QA session here the good news is that we have uh, wine and cheese uh, upstairs and both of our speakers are going to be here and David is uh, going to be signing books. So once again, I want to encourage you to please, please buy a copy of his book uh, and read it. And uh, <laughs> highly recommend it um, as, a, as a present um, to all your loved ones. Uh, thank you very much for coming and uh, hope to see you in the future. Thank you very much.